You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. This is the word of the Lord to the church in Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulations and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear, you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The word of the Lord. I love it, I love it. Thank you, Dora, thank you, Keith. One of my great joys was trekking all over Israel last summer with Dora and Keith and just pestering her with a Dora theme song the entire time. It was awesome. It was awesome. Church family, good to see you. Uh, If I haven't met you, if you're a guest with us, uh, my name is Shea Sumlin, one of the pastors here. And we're going to continue here, week two of our series, Letters to the Church. We're looking at the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation that Jesus writes to. And so if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me to to Revelation chapter 2. We'll get to verse 8 here in just a little bit. But, you know, last week we looked at the very first church in this series, the church of Ephesus. And this whole series is centering around what Jesus describes as that which should characterize faithfulness in a church in a day of compromise. And we're looking at really seven areas of faithfulness. Last week we looked at the area of faithfulness in our love for Jesus Christ and out of the love that Jesus has for us. We looked at the church of Ephesus that was doing so many wonderful things and yet there was one thing that they had neglected and that is they had abandoned their first love. And that we talked about what, what it means to be a church that is faithfulness and persevering in our love for Jesus, never forsaking our first love, but being a church like Northway Church that would be marked by the love of Jesus Christ above anything else. This second week, we're going to look at the church that is in the city of Smyrna, the ancient city of Smyrna, and we're going to be looking at faithfulness uh, in the area of suffering. And so what does it look like to be a church that is marked by faithfulness in the midst of suffering? Not a church that runs from suffering, not a church that, that tries to stay away from persecution and just asks for deliverance all the time, but honestly, when suffering comes, what would it look like for us to be standing strong in the Lord and not lengthening our tether from him, but holding fast to Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering? And so this message, I think, is is becoming more and more relevant for us as Christians uh, in the world that we're in today. In the West, we've been so marked by comfort and ease for so long, and that is beginning to tilt now to where Christians are, by and large, entering into a minority space rather than a majority space and are experiencing marginalization and experiencing forms of persecution. Now, maybe not to the extent we're seeing in other countries around the world, but I think it's not a matter of if, but when that day comes. What shall it look like for us to stand strong in the Lord? And so, 
Smyrna, I want to give you a little bit of background here. It's going to help us as we go into this letter. Smyrna, the ancient city of Smyrna is no longer called Smyrna today. Today, it's the city of Izmir. Um, Izmir, on the western coast of Turkey, we're probably 30, 40 minutes uh, or miles north of Ephesus. Um, So as this letter of Revelation is being delivered by a courier to Ephesus, it's now moved on and is heading north to Smyrna, to the church that finds themselves in that city. Um, but Izmir is the modern city. It's a beautiful coastal city. Even in its ancient days, it's always been described by ancient historians as one of the most beautiful cities uh, in all the world, but certainly right there in Turkey on the Aegean Sea. Today, it's a leading port city. Even though we think of Istanbul as this major city, most of its exports actually come out of Izmir rather than Istanbul, a lot of of its goods and services are sent down from Istanbul and sent out of the port that is there in Izmir. And so it's a very significant city in the 21st century, but it was also a significant city in the first century as well. First century, it too was a leading port city in the Roman Empire. Its number one commodity in the ancient uh, first century that was exported out of Smyrna was actually its own namesake. The, the word Smyrna in Greek means myrrh, and that's because it was the most prevalent commodity that was exported out. Myrrh was a uh, burial uh, spice, is what it's most commonly known as, but it was a, it's a fragrance. It's a, it's a very beautiful fragrance, valued fragrance that was very popular in the ancient Near East, became associated as being a burial spice. Think about when the Magi came and visited Jesus in Bethlehem at his birth. They brought with them gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And myrrh was indicative of suffering because it was used as a burial um, spice. Uh, in fact, when the women went to the tomb at the end of Jesus' uh, life before he died and was resurrected, when he was in the grave, they came and brought myrrh to prepare his body. And so it is a burial spice, and it's no wonder why in the first century, the number one consumer of the myrrh export out of Smyrna was Egypt, because Egypt used in their burial traditions more than any other country uh, the product of myrrh. And so it became representative of suffering and death. And in fact, over time, Smyrna would become more and more associated with suffering and death, although it wasn't just because of the myrrh that was coming out of there. It's because of the history of Smyrna. Uh, it had a history of being a city that would kind of build itself up and then die and then kind of resurrect again. Um, in 600 BC, it's the earliest of days, Lydian king Attalus came in and absolutely leveled Smyrna into a, made it literally from a a prominent city to a tiny little village. And then in the 300s, Alexander the Great comes rolling in and he has a dream that one day Smyrna is going to be this magnificent city rebuilt again. And so he decides to begin making that dream come true. And Alexander the Great starts building this city up again. But it wasn't until 23 BC when Rome was seeking ownership of this and was battling Carthage. And in this battle of control, the citizens of Smyrna sided with Rome. And when Rome won, they greatly rewarded Smyrna for her loyalty to Rome and allowed Smyrna to become the first neochorus, which means temple keeper. It's the first city We saw this in Ephesus uh, with Domitian, but this was the first city in the entire Roman Empire 
that was given permission to build a temple to Rome under Emperor Tiberius. And so they uh, become really this known uh, city for having this history of being a decimated small village meant to be nothing and then built back up to this glorious state where literally people are coming from all over the nations to honor Rome there in Smyrna. And so even after that, in its folklore, in all its literature, Smyrna became known as the city that once was dead and now had come back to life. This was its reputation. And that is the exact theme that Jesus is going to pick up on when he writes this letter to a group of Christians who are suffering greatly uh, in persecution there in the ancient city of Smyrna in the first century. And notice who Jesus is to this suffering church in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, he who died and came back to life. Jesus says to this persecuted and suffering church, I've been where you are. And just like the history of your city, I too know what it's like to go into the grave and be resurrected to new life. I am the God of resurrection. And he says to this church in verse nine, I know where you're at. I know, incidentally, that phrase, I know, is used in all seven letters. Jesus says, I know right where you are. I see you. And to a group of suffering Christians, man, how good is it to know that when you find yourself suffering, when you find yourself afflicted on all fronts, when you find yourself beat down and hemmed in, there is a God who sees you. There's a God who knows right where you are. There's a God who has walked where you have walked and is very, identifies himself very much with a suffering people. And so he knows what you're going through. And he says in verse nine, I know your tribulation. That word tribulation in the Greek means weight, means pressure. And that word in the Greek was taken from an ancient practice of torture where they would take an individual, lay them out on their back, and they would take heavy weights and lay them on their chest one at a time. And they would stack those weights to the point that it would crush or press your chest so hard that you could not breathe and you would literally suffocate to death. That's the word for tribulation here. And Jesus says, I know the suffocating weight that you're under right now. I know how heavy the persecution is on you right now, that it is bringing to the point that you cannot breathe. And in this letter, Jesus is going to specify three specific weights of tribulation that are stacking on the chest of this church. Two of them they were already experiencing, poverty and slander. One of them had yet to come, but was coming soon. And that was imprisonment and death for the name of Jesus. So I want to look at these three here briefly real quick here. Notice there in verse 9, the first is the weight of poverty that they were under. I know your tribulation and your poverty. 
Taking a stand for Jesus in the Roman Empire, especially under Emperor Domitian at this time, was incredibly costly to Christians, especially in affluent Smyrna. Smyrna, this great, beautiful city with all these exports and all the wealth that was coming in and out of this city, and yet here is a totally marginalized people that had had everything taken away from them. Following Jesus often cost you your livelihood in this day. It would would result in the loss of your job. It would result in your inability to even get hired at a job. It would remove you from the trade guilds that secured your livelihood. Even if you had a shop, it would get you canceled for following Jesus. They would simply go past your shop and go down to another shop because of your claim to follow a monotheistic God, Jesus Christ, and therefore abandon all the other gods of Rome, that would, that would bring um, cursing upon one's business. And so this would cost you your livelihood. In fact, the Greek word for poverty literally can be translated nothingness. It's not just that you're broke. You will lose everything in order to follow Jesus. Now, we'll see this more specifically when we get to Thyatira here in a couple of weeks, but this was the case for the church at Smyrna. Obedience to Jesus was costing them everything. But notice Jesus' immediate encouragement, even though you're poor, even though you're in poverty and you have nothing in the world's eyes, you are rich in me. Jesus knows that wealth is not wrapped up in monetary or material possessions. Jesus knows that. There is a type of wealth that is not found in this world. Jesus said in Luke 12, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1 that the riches of his grace and his glorious inheritance are yours in Christ Jesus. Paul also wrote to the Romans, oh, the depths of his riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God that are yours. There is a certain kind of wealth that cannot be bought. It can only be received in Jesus Christ. Uh, Many of you know if you've traveled in other countries and get outside of the West and go into some of the harder places in our world, you'll see Christians there with immense poverty, and yet an abundance of joy. Remember going into Sudan and seeing such a persecuted church, literally lives on the line every day. I had to be snuck in just to get into some of the territories that we went. And as we met the Christians there who are in the worst of conditions you can imagine, yet had such a transcendent joy on their faces and in their hearts and in their generosity towards us with the little that they had because they know that they have been given everything in Christ Jesus. Stands in stark contrast to the abundance of wealth that even the poorest of poor in America have compared to other places in the world. There is proof that there is a wealth that cannot be purchased here on this earth but can only be given eternally in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus reminds them that it is possible to have nothing in this world and yet possess everything in Christ. I know the weight of poverty that is on you. 
And yet, secondly, he also identifies with the weight of slander that they were facing as well. You see that in verse 9. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, what in the world does this mean? Jesus is not being anti-Semitic here. He himself was a Jew. He's not being anti-Semitic here. When Jesus says these words, there's a meaning behind them. And what you come to find out is that one of the early privileges under the Roman Empire, when the Roman Empire began, is that Jewish citizens were given a special status in that they could worship freely and not have to bend the knee to Caesar. All Roman citizens were expected that at least once a year, if not weekly in some cities, but once a year, you would go make an incense offering to Rome, to Caesar, and you would bow the knee and declare that Caesar is Lord. And if you were unwilling to do that, you would not receive a certificate that they would receive, and you would be persecuted for doing so. But Jews, Judaism, got to be protected early on where they, they did not have to offer an incense offering. They did not have to bow the knee to Caesar. They were allowed to, to worship Yahweh freely, and they could build their synagogues in local cities without fear of persecution and, and could enjoy that space together. But what happened is as Christianity comes along, it is seen, rightly so, as the fulfillment of Judaism. It's not an addition to Judaism or contrary to Judaism. It is the fulfillment of Judaism. So therefore, it is regarded as a sect of Judaism by the Roman Empire, and were given the same status and privileges early on that the Jews were. As long as they too would gather in the synagogues and worship Christ, they were free to do so. However, the Jews didn't like that. And we're going to see this both here in Smyrna as well as in uh, Philadelphia here in a few weeks. They didn't like that because, first of all, and obviously, they considered Christianity to be blasphemous. To believe that Jesus Christ was God was blasphemous to a rejecting Jew at the time. But on top of that, it wasn't enough that you just didn't declare Caesar as Lord, but for a Christian to go so bold as to publicly say in the marketplaces that Jesus is the only Lord, that sent Rome over the edge. And as long as that statement was associated with Jews, the Jews wanted to distance themselves from that, lest they get persecuted along with the Christians by Rome. And so to create that distance, they began slandering Christians, especially in Smyrna, but did this all over the Roman Empire. They would slander Christians. They would accuse them, number one, of being cannibals, because every time they would get together, they would take communion together, and they would eat in memory of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, as we will do here in just a moment. And they were accused as being cannibals for eating the physical body and the physical flesh of Jesus. They're also slandered as being atheists, not because uh, they didn't believe in any gods, because in a Roman empire with a pantheons of Greco-Roman gods, to say that you only worshiped one of them made you an atheist because you didn't believe in all of them. And so they were accused of that. They were also accused of being anti-family because they kept hearing these Christians refer to one another as brother and sister. So apparently they had a problem with their home family that they had to identify with one another as brother and sister. And this flew in the face of Rome as well. And in addition, they were also slandered that every time they got together, they were engaging in immorality in their gatherings together. And so all of these things, plus declaring Jesus as Lord, they 
the Jews sought to marginalize and alienate Christians, not only from themselves, but from Rome as well, and it worked in Smyrna. It made Christians a despised subculture. And Jesus says this act by the Jews of persecuting the Christians there in Smyrna wasn't reflective of true Judaism. Remember, even Paul said there is um, there's such a thing that not all Israel is Israel because a true Jew would eagerly expect and anticipate their long-awaited Savior, Jesus Christ, and would embrace him as the long-anticipated Savior. So to reject Jesus and to persecute his own body, his church, was in fact satanic. Because anyone who is opposed to Jesus Christ and his church is not of God, they are of the devil. They are in opposition to God. Again, we'll see the same thing in Philadelphia here in a few weeks. But Jesus says, I know my church. And I'm well aware of the weights that are putting pressure on you in Smyrna and suffocating you. But in addition to that, Jesus, being fully omniscient, now seeks to prepare them for a third weight that is not yet there but is coming. And that is the weight of imprisonment and death that will soon be knocking at the door in Smyrna. You see this in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, though Rome certainly is gonna be the vessel along with the local synagogues that will persecute the church, Jesus makes it clear Satan is the driver of this persecution. And to be thrown into prison for your faith in Jesus Christ was the total loss of your freedom. And you were put in incredibly harsh conditions. And if by chance you were given a death sentence in Smyrna, it could come in a number of forms in Smyrna. It could be through crucifixion. It could be through beheading. It could be through feeding you to wild beasts in the arena. Or it could be boiling you alive in oil or even burning you at the stake. All those were common forms of death and martyrdom for many Christians. And sure enough, that's exactly what would happen in the days ahead. Now, we don't have it here. We're told that this persecution is coming, but we know for a fact one of the most famous martyrs was martyred in just the years following this letter. A man by the name of Polycarp, who was a the pastor there in Smyrna, the bishop of Smyrna. And uh, he died in 155 AD, not long after this was written. We know that he was a disciple of John because he was a friend of one of the church fathers, Ignatius, who wrote letters about the church at Smyrna and let us know that Polycarp, the pastor in that, that church, was discipled by John the Apostle. John the Apostle, who now had left uh, Jerusalem, after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, is now stationed in uh, Ephesus, just south of Smyrna. And he had apparently befriended Polycarp at some point, had poured into him, and has now set him up to be the pastor there in Smyrna years later. And eventually, what we know from these letters is that Polycarp was eventually arrested there in Smyrna for being an atheist, for not worshiping all the gods of Rome, and so he was brought before the proconsul 
in Smyrna, and he was asked to recant his faith by swearing and cursing the Christ. But he would not do it. And in fact, many of you that are familiar with Polycarp might know his famous classic statement that was made before the proconsul standing there in an arena there in Smyrna when he said, 80 and six years I have served him, that is Jesus Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How then can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? He was then threatened that if he did not recant, he would be fed to the wild, wild beasts, and Polycarp responded, send them. When they didn't buy that, then they threatened that they would consume him with fire alive, burned at the stake. And Polycarp's reply was this, you threaten with fire that burns for an hour, and in a little while is quenched, but you don't know the fire of the judgment that is to come. The fire of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. So do not delay, bring it on. And as they were about to nail him to the stake, he refused the nails. And he said to them, He that granted me to endure the fire will also grant me also to remain to the pyre, unmoved without being secured with nails. In other words, you don't have to use nails to pin me to this stake. My faith in the Lord will pin me right here to this stake. And so, as tradition says, they lit the fire. And Polycarp was martyred right there in the arena, there in Smyrna. So indeed, what Jesus said would happen, it happened. And the reference to this testing lasting 10 days, a lot of debate and scholarly debates going into what those 10 days are. Some see those as a literal 10 days that at some point in the near future, there'd be a 10-day window when all this persecution would just hammer the saints at Smyrna. Some view this as prophetic of Daniel 1 when it was prophesied about 10 days of suffering that would happen. Some view this not as a literal 10 days, but as metaphorical for a, or allegorical even for a 10, 10 period um, length of time of 10 different Roman emperors who would persecute the church later on. And there were indeed at least 10 that would do so. But many understand this as just a common metaphor that was used in that day to say 10 days from now was indicating that something would last for only a short period of time and then it would be over. Regardless, the same idea is true when Paul told the Corinthians that this suffering that you're walking through is only actually just a momentary affliction. It'll be over and done with here soon. But what is being produced in you in this momentary affliction is an eternal weight of glory that will last forever. In other words, this film that you're watching here in Smyrna, it's only 20 minutes of a three-hour documentary. You've only seen a taste of the worst of it, but the eternal weight that is coming far outweigh the narrative of suffering that you're walking through right now. So therefore, Jesus encourages this church he says at the end of verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. This would have been a sobering statement to hear. The death is coming for you soon. They're going to lock you in prison and some of you are going to be executed for your faith in me. So be faithful all the way to the end and there will be a crown that is waiting for you. Now, 
Every citizen in Smyrna would have known what that statement meant. It would have meant something really significant to them. You know why? Because the crown was the official symbol of the city of Smyrna. On the Acropolis, up on the hill, on the Acropolis on the hill, the very top of the Acropolis, there is a fortress built up there, and it literally looked like a crown. You would see the crown, and it became the official symbol of all of Smyrna that they would identify their city with. And this was so prominent that the crown was actually then minted on all their coins. So if you look up a coin from Smyrna, it has on one side a head with the crown on it, and on the back side has a picture of the Stephanos, which was the Greek term for the wreath at the athletic games. When you competed, and they they held those athletic games there in Smyrna, when you competed in an event, the victor of that event was given the crown, the wreath, the Stephanos placed upon your head, indicating victory. Jesus says, don't be afraid to die. Why? Because death is not the end. Death is merely the finish line that grants you the victory in the race that you've run that will carry for the rest of eternity. To these Christians and their tribulation of poverty and their weight of slander and their weight of imprisonment and death, their suffering made them feel like they were losers not victors. And they were in the eyes of the world, no doubt, but to Jesus, he knew that just like him, suffering and death were merely the pathway for resurrection and victory. That's why Paul told the Philippians to live as Christ and to die as gain. Jesus tells them, you hang in there. You be faithful to the end. And I promise you, great is going to be your reward. And so lastly, notice, look at the very end of verse 11. He, in addition, offers them this encouragement. To the one who conquers, they will not be hurt by the second death. In other words, as much as we are all naturally fearful of probably our own death, our own bodily death, however that may come, Jesus says there is another death a second death that is even more terrifying than that. What is that second death? Jesus makes it clear a few chapters later in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, when he says this, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Speaking of hell. Jesus told his followers in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, to the one who is found in Jesus, poverty may overtake you, slander may overtake you, imprisonment and even your own physical death may overtake you. But you don't have to fear because the second death will never touch you. Because if you are in Christ, he has already overcome the second death for you. 
when he rose up out of that grave after dying for your sins and my sins, shedding his blood so that we can be forgiven, taking our place where justice demanded it and he stepped in for us. And when he rose from that grave three days later and then 40 days after that ascended to the throne on high, he is seated in the victor's chair right now, never to be unseated again. He is He is the victor, and if your faith is in him, if you have transferred your trust from your own works and your own righteousness to Christ and his works and his righteousness, you are seated. He has a seat reserved right next to him for you, and it can never be taken away. This is the victory that he has brought to us, and so Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And I would say this, whatever suffering you have walked through in this life, whatever suffering you are walking through right now, where you feel like the pressure is literally suffocating you, there is one who sees you. There is one who knows right where you are. There is one who knows what you're walking through right now. There is one himself who has suffered as you have suffered. And he has already defeated your greatest enemy. He has already conquered the worst of it. And this suffering will not last forever. There is a day coming, even if it comes with the end of your life, that you will cross that finish line for those who walk faithfully in Jesus and you will be seated in the heavenly places with him. And all that suffering, as Paul said, he said, I consider in Romans 8, I consider the present sufferings of this world, they're not even worth comparing to the glory that's one day going to be revealed to us. So no matter what you're walking through, and no matter what's still to come, Jesus says, you hang in there. I've overcome the world. And if you remain in me, no matter what you have lost, you will overcome as well. Now, while I think a message like this applies to all types of sufferings that we can walk through, certainly the context here is that of religious persecution for one's belief in Christ and willingness to go to the death for our allegiance and loyalty to him. And so I think as we've done in this series we're going to do each and every week, I think there is a need for us to pause at the end of a message like this and consider what are the implications for us? Now, clearly... I, I, You and I aren't encountering the types of persecution necessarily that we are seeing all across the world right now. We're literally men and women, brothers and sisters of ours in Jesus Christ are being put to death right now as I speak because of their faith in Jesus Christ. I think one of the takeaways that we have to have in a message like this is we need to be faithful to pray for the persecuted church. Hebrews bids us to remember those who are in chains as if we were there with them because we're part of the same body. And what's true of one of us happens to the rest of us, at least in spirit. And so for us to be faithful, maybe take the next six days following this message up into our gathering next week, and let's be faithful to pray for the persecuted church. Kevin DeYoung said this just a few years ago, and it's spot on. Revelation 6, 11 reminds us that there is a set number of martyrs that must die before the end will come, before Christ will return. 
And what we've best estimated is over the course of the last 2,000 years, since this letter was written, there has been over 70 million Christians who have been martyred in the last 2,000 years. 55 million of those 70 million were put to death by the state. 45 million of those were killed in the 20th century. We tend to think of martyrdom as something that was back in the ancient of days. This has happened in our backyard of our lifespan. Out of those, it's estimated 160,000 Christians are martyred every year. With about 0.08%, that's one out of every 120 Christians, finishes their lives through execution. So there will be more. So let us pray for those who will lose their life because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And let's pray that we who are in the West would grow our suffering muscles should we ever face the same fate. But I think secondly, in addition to praying for the persecuted church, we can do our own introspection. Part of this series is helping us recalibrate what faithfulness looks like as a follower of Jesus Christ. And part of this is also preparing us for future faithfulness to come. There are only two commands in this entire letter to Smyrna. By the way, Smyrna is one of only two churches out of the seven who have no rebuke or correction whatsoever. They're only given encouragement. And it happens to be the two churches that are suffering the most persecution. And part of that reason is, is because when you're persecuted, it's when you find out who a real Christian is. For the majority of those in the West who've bought into a prosperity gospel, who believe that following Jesus is just meant to insulate us and comfort us and make us prosper and wealth and health and whatever it may be, the moment persecution comes in, that doesn't add up. And and so it's easy to see when persecution fires up who the real thing is, who scatters. And the truth is nowhere in scripture does it say that following Jesus, you're not going to suffer. In fact, it's the opposite. One of the ways we're going to know that you're a Christian is your willingness to suffer for the gospel that is being preached among us. And so therefore, there's only two commands in this whole letter, and I think we can orient ourselves maybe around these two commands. One of them is do not be afraid. And the other command in this letter is be faithful to the end. In terms of fear and being afraid, I think one of the questions we can ask ourselves this week is, are there areas in our life right now where we are fearful of suffering to the point of compromise? Is there, can we be honest and go, is there a part of us that really is suffering phobic? That we end up arranging our lives to such a degree that it's not that we're not willing to embrace suffering, we're actually just want to avoid it altogether. So that when it does come, it feels so foreign that we want to resist it and run away, even if it means compromising. Fear is totally normal. I got my own fears about ways to die. I don't want to be buried alive. That one that freaks me out. I just don't even want to go there. But to think about my own death, it's scary. And it's totally normal. But I think what's interesting, do you know the number one command in the whole Bible? The most oft-repeated command of any other command in the Bible. Do not fear. Do not fear. Why? 
Because underneath fear and anxiety is our loss of control. We want to control things, and when something's out of control, that induces fear. But what's underneath control is worship. It's ascribing worth to something that that thing has power over your life, and you must submit to it and owe it your reverence and all the rest of your life. But the only thing in Scripture that says is worthy of our fear is God himself. It's even Solomon at the beginning of Proverbs, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. He's who we should fear the most because he's the only one worthy of the reverence and awe of our life. He's the only one worthy of the control over our lives. And we trust him because he's good. It's again why, why Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who is sovereign over the soul as well. Let's fear him. Let's cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. So maybe do some inventory. Are there areas of our life right now where if truth be known, we are operating in fear rather than faith? And therefore, we might run from suffering. We might be tempted to compromise if persecution came along. And let's reorient those fears back to where they belong in Jesus Christ. But I think secondly comes faithfulness. Faithfulness is what we do in the meantime. Faithfulness is our response to fear. To believe in him so much that not even the gates of death can touch us that we keep pressing on in our mission all the way to the end, regardless of our circumstances. And so maybe one of the questions we can ask ourselves this week is, what does faithfulness to Jesus look like in our life right now? Are there areas where we have compromised faithfulness through our unwillingness to serve Jesus because of what it may cost me? Listen, I'm no prophet here, I don't have a crystal ball into the future, but I also think that uh, it doesn't take a PhD. Uh, certainly, it can leverage my UNT general studies degree in this moment to know that things aren't getting any easier for Christians. And there are days coming, if they are not here right now, where your boldness for Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation is going to cost you where your exaltation of Christ's name above any other name to be worshiped more than anyone else, it is going to cost you. Where your affirmation of the truth of God's word concerning the dignity of human rights from the womb to the tomb, your belief in that is going to cost you. Your affirmation of Jesus' truths concerning human sexuality and fidelity in marriage, it is going to cost you. And when we hold those views and hold publicly to our faith in Jesus Christ, there is a day coming where it is going to marginalize you. You're not going to gain privileges from them. You're going to lose them. And you will be slandered publicly because of them. Are you willing to hold fast to Jesus even if it means you lose everything else? Because you believe him to be good. You believe him to be holy. You believe him to be the one who came and rescued you from the worst enemy you could ever possibly imagine. What will faithfulness look like for us in a day of compromise? Let us be like the church in Acts 4 who amidst suffering doesn't just pray for deliverance from it, but prays for even more boldness 
to continue to herald the name of Jesus all the more, even unto death. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we need to hear this word. Lord, I need to hear this word. I confess I am suffering phobic. I confess that I love my comfort. I love my freedoms, my privileges. But Lord, I confess I love you more. And I pray, God, that you would help us by your spirit to hold fast to you, the one who has held fast to us, the one who came and died and rose for us to seat us with you in the heavenly places. Oh God, may that be our greatest treasure, more than any other treasure we could obtain on this earth. Would you gird us up as Northway Church? Would you give us some rhino skin, some Teflon skin, Lord, of faith in Jesus, that we can stand in the gap in our day and be bold with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and be faithful to the very end. We pray this for your glory, our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.